Author A.W. Tozer writes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, there's a test a professor named Scott McKnight gives every year to his incoming group of college students, and the test begins with a series of questions about what the students think Jesus is like. Is he moody? Does he get nervous? Is he the life of the party, or is Jesus an introvert? 24 questions are then followed by a second set, which are slightly altered language, in which the students answer questions about themselves, about their own personalities. McKnight is not the only one who's administered this exam. It's been field tested by other professionals as well, but the results are remarkably consistent. Everyone thinks Jesus is just like them. McKnight says the test results also suggest that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. McKnight's personality questionnaire confirms what the French philosopher Voltaire said three centuries ago, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. So what comes to your mind when you think about God? Today, we're about to see that God is entirely more loving and more merciful than we think he is because he is far more loving and far more merciful than we are. And we find this beautiful portrait of God in Titus chapter 3. If you open your Bibles there, find your way there on your phones or your devices, I'd like to pray for us again as we open it up. Lord, show us your glory this morning in your word by your spirit that we might follow you and love you all the more. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. So Titus chapter 3 is where we are in our study of the book, little book of Titus. And verse 1 says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So here we have uh, yet another list from Paul in this little letter to Titus. It's turned into kind of a book of lists. This one has seven things Titus is to make sure the churches on that little Isle of Crete do not forget. And I'm going to, for the purposes of our time this morning, I'm going to push them into two groups, their relationship to their authority and their speech, though the second category is actually a little bigger than that. First, their submission to authority says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. Obviously, he has the governing authority in view here, right? So there's a sense in which this is about politics. Submission is to be our common posture as Christ followers before the authorities. Now, it's not absolute, right? I mean, we can think of examples in, even in the last century. Think of Corey Ten Boom hiding Jews from the Nazis. Think of Christians in the U.S. defying racial segregation laws during the civil rights movement in the 60s. Think of Chinese pastors in our day refusing to not baptize young Christ followers. There are exceptions 
But Paul's pretty clear here. Our common posture before authorities placed over us is to be one of submission and obedience. Now, the second category that I'm grouping all these things in is our speech and some related conduct, we could say. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. And the words for those last two positive virtues, um, gentleness and courteousness, are used by Paul to describe Jesus in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. The idea here, he's saying to us, we are to treat people the way Jesus treated people. One of the first and primary manifestations of faith in the life of a believer is the transformation of the way we speak. Jesus himself said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So submission to authority, speech, politics, and speech. What if we push those together this morning? Politics and speech. Does your political speech reflect a posture of submission to our government? Is your political speech marked by not speaking evil, by not quarreling, by being gentle, by showing courtesy to everyone. You know, it's a, uh, historians think that the people on the island of Crete had it worse politically than we do, right? This is, uh, there was a Greek historian named Polybius. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Polybius, uh, something like that. He said, it's impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete, right? They had it hard, and yet Paul asks of them to be submissive to their government, to be gentle in their speech. Paul is concerned here with the winsomeness of our witness, Right? That's why he ends verse 2 in showing courtesy to all people. He's talking about our culture. Our political posture and our speech can impair our witness. So Paul says, submit even to that corrupt government on Crete. Guard your tongue so that your witness for Christ will not be dimmed. These kinds of things reflect a trust in a greater authority than our government. One who we know will be just and who will be kind towards his citizens. So these things must mark the conduct of a Christ follower, especially in the public square, and that would include your online persona, right? Your posts should speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy towards all people. The word of the Lord, right? Thanks be to God, all the people said. All right. So, 
Surprise, surprise, verse 3 is another list of about seven things. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Paul here is describing who the, the Cretans and who we as believers used to be apart from Christ. And when you read lists of people's lives apart from Christ, this can be hard for um, those of you who were raised in believing homes who came to Christ early in life to see your six-year-old self in this description, right? But you might think of it as saying, this was your trajectory. If you came to Christ young, this was your trajectory, right? This is this is who you would have become apart from Christ. And notice that Paul includes himself here. He says, this is who we used to be. And he lists what have been called the seven deadly traits. And I, I, this section of uh, Scripture was tremendously helped by a guy in Britain named Tim Chester who wrote really well about this. And he said, uh, our relationship with God was a mess before we knew Christ. We were foolish and disobedient. In the Bible, a fool is someone who says in his heart, there is no God. A fool is not necessarily an avowed atheist. It's someone who lives as if God does not exist. To ignore God is the definition of folly. And a disobedient person is someone who rejects God's rule and wants to run their own life. Because our relationship with God is a mess, he says our relationships with one another are a mess. And so in foolish disobedience, we have lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Malice is wishing bad things would happen to people. Envy is wishing good things would not happen to people. And that was what we were living like when Jesus saved us. Right? And that's the very next thing he's going to say. He's going to talk about the fact that Jesus saved us. But don't miss this. These seven things describe who we were before God when he decided to save us. We were a mess with nothing to commend ourselves to him. And then Tim Chester walks us through a really helpful imaginary whiteboard exercise. He says, imagine God deciding whether to save us with a list on a whiteboard, pros and cons. What is on the cons side of saving us? What are the reasons why God should condemn us? Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hated, hating. The list could go on and on. And what is on the pros side? What is on the list of reasons why God should save us? It looks like this. There really is no reason why God should save us. It doesn't mean there aren't good things about us that, that we don't have. We don't bear the image of God. We don't have talents. We don't have, you know, things that are delightful. But there's nothing that merits God saving us. But then, and this is the good news, God writes across that page of our cons, my goodness, my love. My mercy. And he saves us based on that. 
God did not look at us and think, on balance, they're not too bad. He did not look at us and think, I can see some potential there. He saw folly, disobedience, malice, envy, and hatred. He saw a thousand reasons to condemn us forever, and yet in his kindness and love he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And God writes across the pages of our lives, my kindness, my love, my mercy. And he saves us. And this is where Paul's going to take us next, so please pay special attention to this section. This is how we are to think about God. These things should be the first things that come to our mind when we think about God. But they're also what he thinks about us. Now, I started with that quote from, Ta- from Tozer. It's a really good one, I think, where he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But it's interesting, there's another spiritual voice from the same time, the early 20th century, And he evidently heard Tozer's quote, and he did not like Tozer's quote at all. This is what C.S. Lewis had to say in response. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. I don't think he liked the quote. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it was related to how he thinks of us. He says, it is written that we shall stand before God, shall appear, shall be inspected by God. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Now both statements have merit. They really are kind of looking at the same idea from differing perspectives. But this morning I want to push them together and say, what does God think of us? And how should we think about God in light of that? So let's look at those verses again, verses four through seven. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So how does God think about us? He loves us. He goes to elaborate lengths to bring us into his family. He sends his own son, he washes us, he renews us, he regenerates us, he richly pours out his spirit on us, and he justifies us. He loves us with an elaborately effective and steadfast love. And what are we to think of God? We are to think that he is good, and he is loving, he is kind, he is merciful, and he is generous. And he is gracious. See, this 
is who we are to think of when we think of God. You know, I've been happily trapped in a long, slow meditation on the love of God for over a year now in my personal um, meditations on Scripture. And so I'm slowly working my way through portions of the Bible. I've made it through Psalms, and I'm most of the way through John's writings, trying to wrap my heart around how it is that God loves me so. And I ran across a book that's really been a helpful aid. Um, it's by Dane Ortland, and it's called Gentle and Lowly. Some of you are reading it or have read it, and I, I'm glad to commend it to you. It is not an easy read because he quotes lots of old dead guys, um, but it's a worthy read. And the book is about one thing. It's about the way Jesus loves sinners. And here's a sampling um, that connects to the portrait of God in our passage today. So in this, he, he quotes an old dead guy um, whose name is Bunyan, uh, John, not Paul. Um, this, is, this is how the quote goes. He's writing about, actually, about this verse um, from John chapter 6 where Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. But Bunyan, because he lived a long time ago, is using the old King James Version, which reads like this. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So here's what Bunyan writes about the persevering love of Christ for sinners just like you and just like me. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. And then just to pound it home, Ray Ortland offers an updated version. It sounds like this. No, wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know, most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present, too. I understand. But I don't, think if, I don't, I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy, and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then he says a text such as John 6, 37 reassures us this is not only a matter of divine decree, but divine desire. 
You are heaven's delight. Come to me, says Christ. I will embrace you into my deepest being and never let you go. This is how our God thinks about us. And this is how we should think about our God. Listen again to what Paul just said in verses 4 through 7. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace and might, we might, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's walk through that. Verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So he has in mind here what we call the incarnation of the Son of God, right? When Jesus came into our world at Christmas, that first Christmas. As Noah taught us so wonderfully last week, Jesus is the grace and glory of God made manifest, put on display Here Paul is saying that the coming of Jesus in history is the goodness and loving kindness of God on display. So if you want to know what what God's grace and glory look like, look at the life of Jesus. He's that gracious. He's that glorious. If you want to know what the goodness and loving kindness of God looks like, look at the life of Jesus. He's that good. He's that loving and kind. And then Paul writes this cascade of things that God does for us to rescue us for those who believe. Verse 5, he saved us by his mercy. Saved us from what? And the prominent idea in Scripture is that we're saved from judgment or even from wrath. It's a thing. Romans 5, Paul writes, same guy writes, Since therefore we have not been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Back in verse 5, he washed us and renewed us, cleansing us from the stain of sins upon our souls. You know, I've always been captivated by the way the Old Testament prophet Isaiah described it. I love this. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now, now that is washed clean. That's how he cleanses us. He washes us until we're regenerated. We're made new, he says. This is not some kind of a makeover, even an extreme makeover. The language is that of being reborn anew. Verse 6, he pours his Holy Spirit out on us. Why is that such a big deal? Well, Jesus said that having the Holy Spirit within us is better than having Jesus next to us. Which is pretty, must be pretty awesome, right? John 16, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. 
It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit he's talking about, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And Paul says he poured him out, him, the Holy Spirit out on us richly. Richly. Think waterfall, not showerhead. Right? This is, he's pouring the Holy Spirit on us richly. Verse 7, he justified us. By his grace. And this is legal kind of language. Again, listen to Tim Chester. This, I thought this was beautifully said. <clears throat> I reread it. It's not beautifully said. It's what it's about that's beautiful. Listen to what it's about. A trial is taking place. The charge is that we are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hated, and hating. There's more than enough evidence against us, and the verdict must surely be guilty. But then the kindness of God intervenes. It appears in the form of His Son. The sentence we deserve is passed on Him. He dies in our place and bears our penalty. And as a result, the verdict against us is no longer one of condemnation, but innocence. We are justified. Thanks be to God. We are justified. And if that's not enough, in verse 7 he says, we become heirs of eternal life. The language here is almost familial. It's the language of like receiving a family inheritance, right? And that's because we've been adopted. Paul writes elsewhere that in love... God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And in all this cascade of work that God is doing to rescue us, the whole Trinity is vitally active. God the Father sends his Son who pours out the Holy Spirit on us. The whole blessed Trinity is at work rescuing us. But there's someone who's not at work in all of this. That's you. Look, look again at verse 5 through 7. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we are saved by his mercy, we are washed by his spirit, we are justified by Jesus, who is the grace of God. Everybody's at work here, everybody's work matters, except ours, right? Paul's explicit. It's not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not even because of our good, righteous works. And you know, Titus, uh, the, the letter to Titus, it's littered with encouragement to do good works. Do some good works, he's been saying over and over again, right? Um, chapter 2, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, Titus. Verse 14 of chapter 2, 
he wants to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1, be ready for every good work. Verse 8, be careful to devote themselves to good works. Down in verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Do good works, Paul's saying at least five times in this little book. Paul says, do some good works, people, but not here. Here in verse 5, he says, he saved us not because of works done, in, done according to us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In matters of our salvation, coming to know our God, it's all on God and his mercy. Nothing to do with us. Christ has earned it. We cannot. And isn't that good news that you don't have to be good enough for God? Who could be good enough for God? Remember, remember that whiteboard exercise, what we bring to the table. Our cons, our sinful condition, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hated, and hating. And our pros, that long list of pros that we bring to God to merit our salvation, right? And then what he writes across the cons of our lives, his kindness, his love, his mercy. See, good works, it's been said, are the fruit of our salvation, not the root of our salvation. Thanks be to God, it's not on me. Okay. And this is how our passage ends, curiously enough. We grasp grace and we live devoted to good works as a result. The saying, he says, is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The work that Jesus did on the cross to procure us mercy and grace, even us, is intended to produce in us good works. Jesus took our place on that cross. He bore the penalty for our sins there. It was his work. It was all his work. It was an undeserved mercy that comes to us through the work of Jesus. And it causes hymn writers to spill volumes of ink, writing lyrics like, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? For my soul. And who does he do it for? For us who believe. Not for us who deserve. For us who believe. Who simply believe in the cross work of Jesus. Necessarily in our place. And what condition were we found in when he loved us this way? We were foolish and disobedient, deceived, enslaved, living in malice and envy, hating and hated. So it has nothing to do with our good works. It's all about Jesus' works that are expressions of God's love and mercy and kindness and grace for us. This is what we are to think of when we think about our God. Mercy to the undeserving. Grace greater than our sins. And this is what he thinks of those of us who are in Christ. 
Only love. Only love for you. Even for sinners, especially for sinners, you are loved by your God. So let me lead us to the Lord's table with this reflection from Dane Ortland in that gentle and lowly book. He's writing about a verse in the book of Hebrews that says that Jesus can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness, since he himself became a man. Ortland writes, in other words, when Hebrews 5.2 says that Jesus can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, the point is that Jesus deals gently and only gently with all sinners who come to him, irrespective of their particular offense and just how heinous it is. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. But if we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will be his lamb-like tenderness for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral. And so this morning, in one way or another, will you come to Jesus to find grace and mercy greater than your sins? Some of you have never approached Jesus that way. And so this morning, you are being asked, you are being invited, you are being called to transfer your faith from your own good works, being good enough, to the good work of Jesus on the cross in your place and the mercy that flows from God over all your sins as a result. Will you transfer your trust this morning from your good works to Jesus' good work? But for those of us who will be approaching the table this morning in remembrance of Christ, in faith in Christ, let me encourage you from one of those old dead guys. His name is Thomas Goodwin. As you come to the table this morning, know that God has for you a multitude of all kinds of mercies. As our hearts and the devil are the father of a variety of sins, he says, so God is the father of a variety of mercies. There's no sin or misery, but God has a mercy for it. He has a multitude of mercies of every kind. If your heart be hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to liven it. If you be sick, he has mercy to heal you. If you be sinful, he has mercies to sanctify and cleanse you. As large and as various as are our wants, so large and various are his mercies. So we may come boldly to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. A mercy from God for every need. And so as you come to the table this morning, let me encourage you, come to Christ and find mercy to help you in your time of need. Let's pray and ready our hearts to come to the Lord's table as his people.